and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 4 uh, and keep them open because we are going to keep returning to this uh, lengthy passage this morning. Today we will encounter what is easily one of the greatest calamities to befall God's people between the exodus and the exile. But through this clear catastrophe, we will see the sovereign hand of God guiding every event, working everything to his perfect glory. We will see God bring his promised punishment on the family of Eli. We'll see him raise up Samuel as his prophet and judge. He works repentance in his people, victory over his enemies, and glory to his name. So turn to 1 Samuel 4. We will start by reading 1 Samuel 4, verses 1 to 9. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of those mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight." Our story begins with Israel suffering a bitter defeat at the hands of the Philistines. 4,000 men die on the battlefield. So the elders of Israel have this fantastic idea. Let's bring out the ark and we'll get its power to save us. So Eli's sons, these wicked men who we saw last week, are already doomed bring out the ark. And you might have noticed the author of 1 Samuel repeating what the ark is, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, and gives us at one point this wonderful extended title for the ark, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. We are reminded by our author right at the beginning of this narrative just what the ark is. The ark is not an idol. It does not contain God or focus his power or represent him. The ark is a throne. It signifies God's presence among his people in the tabernacle. It's where the priests would bring the blood of atonement for sin so that the people could be forgiven. It reminded God's people that their relationship with God was entirely founded on God's gracious deliverance. In bringing out the ark, Israel mixes up much of the truth that they know about God with ideas they have taken from their pagan neighbors. 
They rightly remember that the ark often went out before the people of God, and God worked victory for them. The Jordan River dried up when the ark was carried through. The walls of Jericho fell when the ark was carried around before the people. Now, we will see later in this narrative that at this time, Israel is steeped in idol worship. We've already heard that the priests carrying the ark are wicked men abusing their power and position for sinful pleasure. So for this people to believe that they can bring out the ark and demand that God work victory for them shows that they have misunderstood so much of what the ark was given to them for. The ark is being treated like an idol. Idols can be commanded to work power on our terms. We made them. We get to decide what they do. They are gods that serve us, talismans of divine power we use to glorify ourselves. The Israelites were thinking like idol worshipers. The Philistines were idol worshipers. They definitely saw the ark as an idol. And they responded exactly the way that the Israelites might have wanted them to. They were terrified. They've heard what happened in Egypt, albeit misrepresented through their polytheistic perspective. From their view, the most powerful idol had just been carried into the Israelite camp. It's like Israel has just brought a tank to a gunfight. Now the Philistines are so scared that they fight like they've never fought before. Let's read chapter 4, verses 10 through 22. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by his side at the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Israel's plan backfires. By bringing out the ark, they've motivated the Philistines to fight all the harder. Now they lose 30,000 men and the ark itself is captured. In the midst of this slaughter, the sons of Eli are killed. 
And as soon as he hears about the ark, Eli himself dies. Then his daughter-in-law, when she hears about the ark, dies in childbirth, and her son is called Ichabod. The glory of God has departed from Israel. So has Israel's horrible plan thwarted God's own design to dwell among his people, to be enthroned in the ark in the tabernacle? Is God helplessly being carried off by the Philistines against his will? Now, we could already see in this story that these horrible events are being worked by God as he works all things according to his will. He brought about the judgment he had promised on Eli's house, and his glory was not stolen by the Philistines. It departed. This was a deliberate action of God. Israel had tried to wield God's fame and his might for the sake of their own greatness. This wicked people were more concerned with their own honor than God's, and the glory of God departed from them. Our first point this morning is this. God's glory departed when his proud people tried to wield it for their benefit. History has repeatedly shown us this sin of men to try to make God's fame and glory instruments of their own gain. They infuse the ideas of the non-Christian cultures around them into their religion to turn God into their superpower or their enforcer or their endorser, even while they are complacent about their own sin. These wicked church leaders like Eli's sons abusing their priestly position have led God's people into much folly. The glory of God becomes a means of gain. This is at the heart of Israel's problem here. What they and so many people since have forgotten is that God's primary passion and preoccupation all through history is his own glory. God's gift to his covenant people is that he desires to work his glory through delivering them. He doesn't save his people because his primary interest is to honor them. He delivers them and honors them so that they would be a people to proclaim his glory. We see this right back in Exodus when the nation of Israel was established by God. They were established by his deliverance for the sake of his glory. We see Pharaoh when he first came up against Moses saying, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then Exodus recounts Pharaoh learning who God is as God gets glory over Pharaoh by delivering his people for the sake of his own name. Exodus shows us that the difference between Pharaoh and Israel is not that Israel is more worthy of God's love, more deserving of glory to have God's power worked for them. The difference was God's choice to get glory for himself by crushing Pharaoh as an enemy and to get glory for himself by delivering Israel as his people. Moses tells Pharaoh on God's behalf, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But then God saves Israel 
so that he can lead them to Sinai and make them his people to glorify him and keep his commandments. He begins the Ten Commandments saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh was not and is not a God dependent on us for anything. This would be a small God who would have less power to save than the true God. God is controlled by no one and in need of nothing, but he graciously chooses to glorify his name by loving and saving his people. Israel had forgotten this by trying to coerce God to do their will, even while they sinned against him, Israel had left God's will and were now acting like his enemies. And so they were defeated and the glory of God departed. The ark, which represented God's presence among his people, is carried off by the Philistines. Let's read 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send the, away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it might not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Philistines did with the ark what they did to any idols that they captured from defeated nations. Gods and idols at the time typically belonged to the nations. They were their gods. When one nation defeated another, they usually got to take their gods. Your gods are going to come and work for us now, serving our gods. So they believe that they now possess the god or gods that did all these amazing things in Egypt. Now they can make those gods serve them, serve Dagon. So they present the idol, they present the ark to their idol, to Dagon, at his temple, as a sign of Dagon's might and his victory over the god of the ark. They go away for the night, they come back the next morning, and Dagon is lying prostrate before the ark. Well, that's more than a little embarrassing. 
the victorious god Dagon is now bowing down before the defeated idol. So they quickly get Dagon back on his feet. They brush him off and they hope nobody's noticed. They leave, they come back the next day and Dagon is lying on his face again and now he's been decapitated. And his hands are cut off. Dagon is exposed as a lifeless piece of dirt in the face of the almighty God. And then a plague befalls the people of Ashdod. The Philistines get a taste of God's glory getting wrath against the Egyptians. And the Philistines start to play a game of hot potato, passing the ark from one city to another as fast as they can before the plague falls on them. And people are finally pleading, don't send the ark to us lest it kill us. So here is our second point this morning. God gets glory for himself by defeating his enemies. Israel failed in its role to serve God's design to glorify his name. Their actions even set them against God's glory for a time. But this didn't mean that God's plans had failed. God gets glory over his enemies. He strikes down the God of the Philistines and he punishes his enemies. He demonstrates that he is the God of heaven and earth. And if he wanted to, he could wipe out all of his enemies with a wave of his hand or an inflection of his voice. If we as God's people sinfully do not ascribe glory to God or seek his glory, we do not foil God's plan. We fail in our attempt to glorify ourselves, but God's plan to glorify his name will never fail. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, as the apostle said. Praise God that even our failures can do nothing to thwart his will. Even his enemies can do nothing to thwart his will. God used the Philistines to discipline his own people, and then he punished the Philistines. The only one getting glory in this story is God. Let's keep reading 1 Samuel 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us. With what shall we send it back to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords." So you must make images of your tumors and images of the mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence." The men did so, 
and took two milk cows and yoked them in the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned there because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The desperate and defeated Philistines are eager to send the ark away. They even want to give glory to God, albeit through their misguided pagan customs and gifts. What they don't do is repent. They are sorry they took the ark. They don't ever want to take the ark again. But they don't turn from their sin and call Yahweh Lord. They even, after all of this, are willing to accept that there is even a sliver of possibility that all of this happened by chance. So God gets glory over his enemies, the Philistines, but they remain his enemies, defeated by him, but not trusting in him. All they get from this experience is a new superstition for worshiping Dagon. The Philistines devise a test to see whether or not a real God was working all of this terror against them. They load the ark and their gifts of apology into a cart yoked to two milk cows, which have just calved and have never been yoked. They're creating a situation in which every natural circumstance would keep the ark from getting to Israel. The first instinct of these untrained milk cows should be to go right to their calves, but they go straight for Israel, lowing, crying for their calves as the will of God drives them neither to the left nor to the right, straight back to his people. The ark returns to Beth Shemesh. The people are overjoyed. They offer the cattle as a sacrifice. And how does God respond? He strikes down 70 men of Beth Shemesh for mishandling the ark of the Lord. Let's read one more time, 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. 
From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Asherah and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit every year by year, to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Our story comes to a wonderful conclusion. The men of Beth Shemesh recognize that they, like the Philistines, are seeing the glory of God at work against them. They, like the Philistines, are misunderstanding the ark itself. The difference is that the Philistines were being punished as God's enemies, and the Israelites are facing the discipline of their father. We see this also in their different response to God's discipline. While the Philistines send away the ark, the men of Beth Shemesh ensure that it is suitably housed. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, the holy God? They recognize both God's holiness and their sinfulness. Israel spends years lamenting after the Lord, crying out over their sin. God's desire in punishing his people was to work repentance in them so that he could offer them mercy. Samuel recognizes this, and he leads them in this repentance. He tells them, if you want to repent, it can't just be sorrow over what you have done. The Philistines felt bad about their actions, but they continued in their sin and rebellion. 
Real repentance means turning away from sin. Samuel tells him, if you want to repent, put away those idols you were worshiping. The Israelites had been bowing down to idols and fertility statues even while they were trying to get God to work victory for them. Samuel reminds Israel that those who enjoy God's deliverance are his people, and that means worshiping him alone. That is who God saved them from Pharaoh to become, a people with no other gods than God. As the people of Israel draw together to repent, the Philistines feel threatened and they take the opportunity to attack again. And we are meant to see how differently the battle goes now than at the beginning of this story. The ark is lodged under the care of a priest in the house of Abinadab. And the people say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now God is not a power to be wielded for the glory of his people. Now Israel remembers that God saves them for his glory. He is God. He has just saved them from their sin because they have repented and he will deliver them from their enemies. Even as Samuel petitions God and offers sacrifices, God defeats the Philistines, not apart from his people, but for his people. Now God gets his glory not by humbling a proud Israel, but by delivering a humble Israel to glorify his name. This is our third point this morning. God gets glory for himself by delivering his people when they repent and cry out. Our story ends with Samuel raising a monument called Ebenezer, which means, till now the Lord has helped us. The monument declares that Israel has nothing, can do nothing apart from God. They are a people formed and preserved only by God's grace and only for God's glory. Through this story, we have seen God deal with people in a number of ways. What was consistent in every situation is that God sovereignly glorified himself. Through chastising the people who had forgotten him by defeating his enemies, through working repentance and victory for Israel later, we can be absolutely confident that nothing we or anyone else does can thwart God's plan or diminish his glory. History is the story of God glorifying himself through both his enemies and his people. He punishes Pharaoh, he saves Israel. He defeats the Philistines, he preserves his people. He crushes the serpent and calls to himself a people from all nations. Israel forgot this when they tried to treat the ark as a talisman of power for their victory. We still forget it. Whenever we treat God's power or this historical testament to his salvation as a reason why we should get glory, why we are awesome. We claim to give glory to God when we try and use his name and his power as the means or the reason for our own success, why we should have everything we want, why we are great. This impulse comes to us like it did to Israel from the godless people around us. It's a self-involved idea of greatness that we take from secular culture and false religions that what God wants most is to serve our glory, to help us earn our way to prove ourselves. This thinking has become a plague in many churches. 
men and women who are disinterested in repentance and glorifying God that are satisfied with their Christian culture and their trappings of Christianity. I'll stay in the room, I will stay in the church if this faith works for me, if it serves my plans, if it gets me what I need. But God has told us his plan for all history that one day every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no other option for history, no option that ends in the glory of men and women. The question for us is whether we will be those who God gets glory through by defeating us or delivering us. But friend, the Bible tells us again and again how much sweeter it is, sweeter than any other fame and glory to repent of our sin and enjoy the deliverance of God's Messiah. First Samuel is the story of God's deliverer, his anointed king who will lift up the drooping heads of God's shamed people. That king will be set apart as the one who cares more about God's glory than his own. Our passage ended today with the ark lodged at the house of Abinadab. But David will be the king that is jealous for the ark to be in Jerusalem, the heart of God's people. He will be the king that mourns that he lives in a palace while the ark is not in a house that reflects God's glory. David's concern for God's glory will be what sets him apart as the king who will deliver God's people and receive the covenant that his royal house will be established forever. And from that house, God would bring the greatest deliverance in history. Through the descendant of David, God would get glory by saving a people for himself, a people enslaved freed to serve God alone. All of us in this world, even as we try and pursue our own greatness and fame and glory, are slaves to the overlord of sin, dead in our transgressions, incapable of achieving anything for ourselves in the eyes of a truly holy God. But God because he is rich in mercy, because he dearly loved us, sent Jesus Christ, his son, the anointed king, the Messiah. Jesus left his place in glory, left all that he deserved to come among us, to be humble among us. He didn't seek his own glory. Like David, his chief concern was to glorify God, which he did by obeying him even to die on a cross for us. He took on himself the shame of our sin and bore the wrath of God in our place. And because of his great humility, even unto death, God himself has resurrected and exalted Jesus Christ as our anointed king and Messiah. And the Father desires that Jesus would get glory by saving a people for himself, a people saved by Jesus' gracious sacrifice to glorify God and praise the name of Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, says the apostle. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, so that no one may glory in themselves. 
Friends, anyone who sees their sin and repents of their sin, who believes this gospel and calls out to God, will receive God's deliverance. Not because we deserve to be saved, not so we can get any glory, but because God will get his glory by saving an undeserving people who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is how God desires that we would glorify him, not by making us great, but by working repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, even in sinful, fallen creatures like us, and making us holy by the power of his Spirit, who we have through Jesus Christ. You might claim to know God, or you might know that you don't know God. He might not be your God, as he was not the God of the Philistines. But if God only sounds like a useful idea to you, if he can become a tool in your own toolkit to make you happy, to make you successful, to make sure that you have whatever you want, then repent. Repent like the people of Israel did. Your pride and desire for your own greatness is blinding you to your own rebellion and sin against God. If you do not repent, if you are like the Philistines, then God will get glory over you by crushing you utterly as an enemy. So repent. Throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ and praise him for saving you when there was nothing worthy in you. Any life lived for your own glory is small and petty at best and then leads to hell. Live for the greater joy, the unimaginably greater joy, which lifts you up far beyond you could ever have striven on your own to be a son or daughter of God Most High, united with Christ to the praise of his salvation. And then, brothers and sisters, let us not forget who we are. Let us not become like Israel, carrying the ark into battle, thinking that our God exists to work for us according to our will. So many people who call themselves Christians will tell them that faith is only worth your time or only meaningful if God is getting you what you want. This attitude can look like praising God for a while because God appears to be getting all the credit because he's the means of my greatness, the means of my satisfaction. God is why you're so successful, so intelligent, so empowered. But if we pervert our faith into one that proves our excellence, then we have become like Israel, forgetting who we are and ignoring how we are still sinning against God because we've defined God's favor based on our human success rather than his declaration that we are justified by faith alone and his sanctifying work that he promises to do in the hearts of his people. We are taking our picture of God from the secular world around us. And we will even grow in our sin and idolatry even while we claim God is serving our interests. This mentality has ruined churches, exposed false teachers, led to the chastisement of God's people, and even exposed that many who claimed they were God's children were all along his enemies. Now, if we are his he will not let go of us. We will persevere to his glory. But like Israel, the price of our repentance 
the price of showing us we were foolish to imagine God was here to serve our glory may be painful and costly. Even if you are God's child, let his word now draw you to repentance, lest a calamity be what is necessary to show you your sin and cause you to repent before God. Brothers and sisters, God made us to be a people that glorified him. And when we rebelled, he delivered us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from the bondage of sin and death to be a people that glorified his name alone. God does not want to get glory by being the means of your awesomeness. God wants to get glory through you recognizing his holiness, repenting of your sin, and rejoicing in the salvation of Jesus Christ. And then even seeing him work wonderful things in you, holiness in the place of sin, love of Jesus Christ in the place of alienation all the rest of your days. That is why God made us his people. And when we gather here as his people, This is what we want to help each other to do, to worship God, to glorify his name together as we were made to do, to glorify him for saving us. We come together to sing to God and to sing to each other, "'Twas grace, not works, not worthiness, grace and grace alone that brought me safe thus far, and grace and grace alone will lead me home. There is not a day in our lives, even when we have been perfected and dwell with God for all eternity, that we will be able to boast in anything other than the greatness and the glory of God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We are a people saved by grace who live each day to glorify Him. 